Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the April 2016 episode of Consult. Wow, we've really reached a milestone here. We're at 10 episodes, and we've had some really incredible people on the show, and this month is no exception. We've got Aaron Hillegas. He's an industry legend. He's the founder and CEO of Big Nerd Ranch. He's also the author of several books that you probably know him from on iOS and Mac programming. And it was really an honor because I've been learning from Aaron going back to when I was a teenager about Mac programming. So for me, it was also a personal honor to have him on the show. I also want to remind everybody to please leave us reviews on iTunes and also please recommend our episodes on Overcast. That's how you can really help the show. And if you want to reach out to me, I always love to get feedback from listeners. Reach me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. But I'm sure you're going to enjoy this interview with Aaron. So without further ado, let's get to it. So my guest today is Aaron Hillegas, the CEO and founder of Big Nerd Ranch. Most people in the community know Aaron, um, but if you don't, he's also the author of Objective-C Programming, the Big Nerd Ranch Guide, iOS Programming, the Big Nerd Ranch Guide, and really the standard bearer for people learning to program for the Mac, Cocoa Programming for OS X. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, Dave, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So Aaron, take us way back. Tell us how earlier in your life you first got into programming. Sure. My father was an urban mass transit planner for the federal government, and he had heard about these microcomputers, and he considered this the first step in a great democratization of technology, that technology was going to be available to everyone. And uh, I was 10 years old, and he said, you really want to be a part of this. Whether you're going to be a computer programmer or not, you really want to be part of this. And he signed me up for a class in the in the basement of the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, OMSI. And every week I'd go there, and this old guy from the telephone company would show up with a bunch of mimeograph sheets with basic programs on it. And he would pass those out, and we'd type them in. And once we had them running, then we would start to customize them to, you know, say dirty words and stuff. And that's how I really got started. And all through my childhood, I was always learning new languages and writing little games and stuff. And then about the time I went to college, I was actually studying music, and I had the worst summer job ever, which was answering the telephone for the U.S. Air Frequent Traveler Program, <laughs> uh, the night shift. And so all night long, I would pick up the phone, and people would scream at me. And I decided I really had to get out of that. So I decided for my summer and winter jobs while I was in college, I would do computer programming. And I... Uh, I went and talked to the people at MITRE Corporation. So MITRE is a sort of a government think tank. And I asked them what they needed, and they said they needed C programmers who knew Unix. And I went to, back to the school at the University of Miami, and I went into the engineering department, and I said, I want to learn C on a Unix machine. And they said, well, we don't have any classes on that. I said, I want to learn C on a Unix machine. And I just kept saying it over and over again until finally they unlocked this secret room where there were two Sun Microsystem workstations. And they said, we'll let you come in here and, and code on these machines if you want. And so I did. I, I got a book on C 
and Unix, and I kept going in and, and learning. And then that summer job, I got a job at the MITRE Advanced Signal Processing Lab, taking the ideas of mathematicians and writing them into C code. And we studied speech recognition and speech coding. We also did um, anti-submarine warfare and a little bit of over-the-horizon radar stuff. So it was a very exciting job. And it was also at a time in my life when I was transitioning from studying music to studying mathematics. And then I went to graduate school in mathematics. And when I ran away from graduate school after a year... I uh, decided that a good way to pay the bills would be to do programming, and I've been doing it ever since. So that's uh, that's how I got into it. Now, how I got into the next stuff is a little bit more twisted. Right, I that was going to be my follow-up, absolutely. <sighs> I mean, because a lot of people know that you were an uh, employee at Next in the 90s. So how do we go from what you just told us about to that? So after running away from graduate school, I ended up in Austin, Texas, working for Tower Technology. They had an Eiffel compiler, and I was really excited about the Eiffel programming language, which if you haven't used, is a strongly typed, garbage-collected language with beautiful generics and beautiful multiple inheritance and a really crucial thing known as design by contract, where your methods could have preconditions. Like, if you're going to call this method, you have to supply me with an argument that's a number over seven. And then post conditions. And when it's done, I promise I'm going to return, you know, a floating point number that is greater than a thousand. This is just sort of examples. And when you're debugging, you could turn those on. And any time that any of the conditions were violated, the whole system would just stop and you would get a perfect backtrace of where your program had gone off the wire. And uh, I really thought that Eiffel was going to be the, the future. And, uh, this Eiffel compiler company was always just about to go out of business and I never got a very good salary. I got some equity, but one day I just, the credit card bills were too much and I took a job on wall street. So I went to wall street and I was the Eiffel guy for this project working on something I thought nobody would ever care about. It was the back office processing of mortgage backed securities. (laughs) So I'm actually the one who brought the world economy to its knees. (laughs) Wow. But what was fun was the back end, the model was all done in Eiffel, and the front end was all done on Next computers using Objective-C and and uh, the UI kit. Well, it was AppKit then, and then mm-hmm. now on iOS, you know it as UI kit, but they're very similar ideas. So I'm one of the lucky people who has about 20 years' experience doing iPhone programming. Wow. And uh, after getting done my contract on Wall Street, I heard that Next needed someone to write courses on how to do development with Objective-C and to wander the world teaching people how to do that sort of uh, coding. So I went and worked at Next Computer in the early 90s, uh, mid-90s, and I was there when we merged with Apple. And about that time, I decided I would leave and start my own thing. So uh, in actually in 2001, I started Big Nerd Ranch. And at that time... Apple's market capitalization was really just a little bit more than the cash they had in the bank. And everyone assumed that they were about to go out of business. But Steve was back at the helm, and he had a clear vision of where the company was going. And I had seen the uh, releases of OS X. I was really excited about that, the pre-releases. And um, I decided I would, I would bet on it. So I sat down and started writing our course on Cocoa Programming. 
Very interesting. And as a little bit of a sidetrack, why do you think Eiffel was not more successful? Because everyone I've met who's worked in Eiffel raves about it. Why do you think it wasn't commercially more successful as a mainstream language? Right. Really, Eiffel is, uh, is, should have been the Java of the current time. And I'm surprised that Java, which is, once again, a strongly typed, object-oriented language with a garbage collector, um, the, there were really two things working against Eiffel. The first one is that the programs tended to be really big, so they took up a lot of memory when they were done. And the other one that was a little bit tricky was um, was Bertrand Meyer, who was the inventor of the language, and could be very hard to work with. And I really believe that his personality was one of the great uh, things that, uh, sorry, one of the primary things that held the language back. Sure. So those are the two things: is that we never got our binaries down very small. And then there were personalities controlling the language that made it difficult for it to evolve where it needed to be. I have to ask you, just because so many people listening are probably interested, what was it like working at Next in the mid-90s? I guess you, were, you came to Next at a time when they'd gotten out of the hardware business, right? And web right. objects was kind of a big thing at the time, and the software was so ahead of its time. But uh, the company was, was flailing a little bit, right, except for the web object side. Is that true? That's exactly right. So we'd stop making the computer. We were making the operating system, and it would run on PCs. Um, but overall, that business model was not going very far, very fast. And at just about this time, the web started to be big, and we took a lot of our, the tools that we had written for the enterprise world, and we put a nice web front end on them, and that was web objects. And it really was very ahead of its time. A lot of the things that you now see in Ruby on Rails were being done a decade before in uh, web objects. And and I think it spoke a lot about the people at Next, that they were utterly competent and many of them truly brilliant and that we could do so much with such a small number of people. We were maintaining the operating system and the developer tools and we were doing web objects and professional services. And it was a really a very small company. It was about 300 people when I was there. And the trick was that just everybody was really good at their job from from end to end. And it was such a treat. And the other thing was that there was only really one customer, and that was Steve. And if you made Steve happy, um, you were doing the right thing. I remember at one point, Next ran out of money, and Steve wrote our paychecks out of his personal checking account. And it was just a symbol of the fact that this was his company. He was willing to bet his own money on it. And that as long as it was going where he wanted it to go, we, we, he would continue to bet on it. Right. And he had the money around that time because I think Toy Story had just come out, right? That's right. So while I was there, Toy Story came out and he actually um, rented out a whole movie theater for us. And we all went and saw Toy Story on the day of the premiere. It was it was. Uh, an amazing thing. And, and to be there while he went through that transition and Pixar went through that transition was very exciting. That's so nice. So when you started Big Nerd Ranch in 2001, Mac OS X had just had its first official release, right? Around its 1.0. Um, That's right. What was your vision for the company going forward? Where did you see the company at that time, uh, let's say five years down the road? So um, my hope was that OS X would become adopted in many places where it wasn't currently adopted. So at the time, Macs were only really expected in the creative industry. So designers had had Macs, and pretty much no one else did. 
And that's a hard industry to break into because they have sort of their standard tools. And if you don't, if you're not part of that, it's hard to sell them software. So my hope was that, uh, that app would expand into new areas. And my vision for, for big nerd ranch is that we would do professional services. So both training and consulting and also publishing books, writing the books has never made us any money overall. It's a really good marketing trick. It lets people know that we really know our stuff. And it's also a nice thing we can do for the community. We can make a lot of our knowledge available in an inexpensive package. So people who can't afford to come to our classes can still read the books. What was but it that like, was always the vision. Sorry. sorry, go ahead. What was it like doing consulting at that time in the Mac market when the Mac market was very small and we had just gone through this tremendous transition from the classic Mac OS to OS X? Um, what was the climate like in 2001 in the consulting market on the Mac? So overall, it was terrible. I mean, there was not a lot of software development going on for OS X. Um, but I got really lucky. Uh, there's a company called Tops Ortho, which does a system for orthodontic practice management. And it does everything. It does patient planning and keeping track of x-rays and scheduling and billing and insurance. It's a huge, huge program. Uh, the company is owned by Mark Sanchez, and Mark had come to class, and we had had long conversations about how he could architect this new application he was writing. And then finally, he said, why don't I just pay you to write this huge application? And so we sat down and wrote this application together, Big Nerd Ranch and Mark Sanchez. And it's a, I have to say, I'm really, really proud of the resulting product. It's still sold and, and it just gets better and better. We created a solid foundation to be built on. And there's a whole big company that now sells and supports Tops Ortho. And I, if you're an orthodontic, I highly recommend you check it out. It's a, it's a great piece of software. So Mark Sanchez really kept Big Nerd Ranch alive. There wasn't a lot of training. There weren't a whole lot of other consulting opportunities. Um, but for the first couple of years, he just patiently wrote checks to us to get his piece of software off the ground. And it makes me so happy to see that it's so successful now. What was the turning point in the market? So you say it was terrible in 2001, maybe for the first few years after that. Was it really the iPhone that, that turned around the Mac consulting business or uh, did it happen before that? Uh, overall, the Mac had become more and more popular. So it was interesting to gradually, uh, we didn't have an office for many years, so I would go to coffee shops to work sometimes. And gradually just saw more and more and more Macs in every coffee shop. You know, the laptops primarily. But the Macintosh became a standard computer in the world. And the growth of Mac software was very real. Uh, I still think there are great opportunities writing software for the Macintosh. Uh, but it's true. Our company didn't see really strong growth until the iOS SDK came out. So about eight years into our existence, right? 2008, the SDK came out. Out of curiosity, um, is the Mac still a significant part of your consulting business or, or not really anymore? We do some Mac stuff. Um, it's not a huge part of what we do. Okay, fair enough. So let's talk about these books because they're so well known. I mean, especially Cocoa Programming for OS X is the de facto Mac programming book. I learned Mac programming from it. Um, and I, I have the most recent edition just here. Uh, that was an interesting um, decision you made, by the way, to jump into Swift at a time when the language was still in flux with the fifth edition. Um, how yeah, do you feel about that tricky. decision now, about a year later, I think, since the book came out? 
Uh, so uh, I really did want to move into Swift because I think it's an exciting language and Apple is indicating that it's the future. And I think the developer tools will, will really evolve around Swift's capabilities. We may have been a little premature. So when you're going to print thousands of copies of a paper book uh, that involve a language that's still evolving, things are problematic. So Apple, for example, announced their an error handling mechanism, the throw mechanism, after we had sent the book off to the printers, and it has created some frustration for readers. We've created a document that's available online. So if you are reading any of our books, always go to the webpage, and there is uh, errata and supplemental materials there on our webpage. So it's especially important in the case of our Cocoa programming book. It's not a huge change. It's a couple lines here and there. But uh, if you type it in exactly as it is in the book, in some places it just won't compile. Now, you said that the books are great for your reputation in the consulting world. Can you tell us a little bit about how that might play out um, with a client? Often in the sales process, you're developing a relationship with the customer. So, for example, in training, someone might see the book or buy the book and then ask their boss to send them to our open enrollment class so they could learn iOS programming or Cocoa programming. And then... If they have really good experience, they might recommend that we do a corporate class for them. And this is exactly how it happened with Google. So Google sent one member of the YouTube team to our open enrollment iOS programming boot camp. And then that person came back and said, we really have to have Big Nerd Ranch here on site. And we have done a ton of training at Google for the last couple of years, teaching them both iOS and Android programming. And that's, that's sort of how you how a lot of sales efforts start. You put your foot in the door and the book is a great way to do that. So a lot of consultants uh, think about getting into the book market uh, to build their reputation. And you've written some amazing books. How did you become a great book writer? And what would be your uh, advice to those who are thinking about writing a technical book? Writing a technical book takes so much more time than you ever imagined. If you're thinking you're going to make money on writing a technical book, just give up. You On any of these books, I would have made more money flipping burgers at, at Burger King rather than writing the book. You're, you're not going to make any money. Um, you need to be really committed to it. You need to find a publisher who's going to support you. That is, um, be reasonable with ship dates and have good editors who are going to go through and really read your materials rather than just publish whatever you put out. We have gotten to the point where we are actually our own publisher. So Big Nerd Ranch books are actually published by Big Nerd Ranch. They're distributed by Pearson, so they get all over the world. Um, but that gives us a lot of editorial control. We do our own, you know, you know, the layout of the book. We do our own editing. We do our own indexing. It's a much bigger commitment, but it allows us to control what goes out and let it reflect well upon us. I think that the book space for iOS development is pretty saturated. If I were thinking about writing a book now, I would need to think that I had some angle that nobody else had covered, and I don't know if that angle exists. I would be reluctant to write a book about iOS programming at this point. Fair enough. So with the books... What has been the biggest challenge in terms of balancing the time that you spend on them versus the time that you spend on consulting, if at all? Has it even been a challenge, or is this something that you do more um, on nights and weekends? No. At this point, most of the books I'm not the first author on anymore. 
Um, most of the writing is actually done by other people in our company, and I'm paying them for every minute that they're writing. <laughs> and so having them use that time effectively is very important. But the important benefit that I have as a training company is that we use these same materials for training. So um, every time that someone fixes a, an error in one of our books, it pays back both in the books and also on the training courses that we do. Now, you've grown Big Nerd Ranch to around 50 people. Is that right? Uh, more like 80. Wow. Wow. Okay. And what kind of challenges have you met since you've been growing? So you started out, I think, with just uh, a co-founder, right, in 2001. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So Emily Herman founded the company with me in 2001. Uh, we went through a short uh, – we went through a merger and there was another CEO for a while. And I was really excited about that because I was going to get back to coding and writing about coding. And um, that didn't work that well. And I have stepped up to be the CEO again, which takes a lot of my time. But I still try to stay active in programming and with the books and the training. Are you still involved in day-to-day architectural decisions, or are you more on the client management side as a CEO? Yeah, yeah on, the, on the consulting side, I'm much more on the client management. So I go and visit with the clients and make sure that they're happy. Um, and I try and make space for the employees to grow technically and create space for them to do the right thing consistently on the projects. So I think I'm more valuable actually doing that than helping them architect the applications. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And when you get to this size, what kind of different challenges do you have than when you were a company of, let's say, 10 or 20 in the consulting space? When you're 10 or 20, you can all sit at a table together and talk about ideas and everyone feels really heard and everyone feels like they really know the people who are making the decisions. And when you get to 80 people... Sometimes things sort of filter through the grapevine in both directions, up and down. And so you have to be really conscious about staying very transparent uh, on, on both ends. You need to make sure that the employees are very transparent about what they're going to get done that week and did it really get done. And management needs to be really transparent about these are the problems we have. We're making these changes and hope that's, that these things happen and hoping that these other things don't happen. And just maintaining that transparency is uh, something you have to be really conscious of. Without naming any names, could you tell us about a particularly challenging client project that you've had over the years? (laughs) Uh, We have only been threatened with a lawsuit once. And that really is the scary thing with consulting. Um, uh, Let me do it it as a parable. (laughs) Right, so, so there's a frat house, and there's a painter, and the painter uh, is approached by the frat house. They say, hey, we really need a painting for over our fireplace. And the painter says, great, I will show up every Wednesday around 4 o'clock, and you bring the paint and tell me what you want painted. And when we're all, when we're all done, each week I'll charge you, let's say, let's say $100 for my time. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the painter shows up the first day, and they say, hey, we'd really like a picture of a rocking chair on a porch. And he starts to sketch it. And at the end of, you know, the, a couple hours of sketching, he says, well, it's time for me to go. He gets his $100 from the frat house, goes home. He comes back the next week, and he, they say, you know what, we changed our mind. 
We don't want a picture of a rocking chair. We really want a picture of a cow. Rocking chairs suck. We want a cow. And uh, so the painter goes and he starts sketching, you know, erases the previous sketch and he starts sketching out the cow. And uh, the day ends and he goes and he gets his $100. And then he goes home again and um, the next week he comes back and he knocks on the door and there's no one there and it's time to paint. And they don't have the, the assets that he needs to actually paint. And this kind of goes on for week after week after week. The painter either gets a different direction or he doesn't get the supplies he needs in order to do the job that he's been hired to do. And, um, and at some point or another, the head of the front house comes out screaming and he says, my God, we've paid $1,300 and all we have is this sketch of a Lamborghini. <laughs> you're, the, you're fired. A painter, you know, he's almost relieved because he feels bad. He's been taking the money and with the changing direction and the and the the uh, the reluctance of them to actually give him what he needs, he feels relieved that that he doesn't have this project anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of years pass. You know, the frat house eventually finds some artist who will fill in the colors on the Lamborghini. It doesn't look great, but they get it up on the wall. And a couple of years pass. And all of a sudden, they get a, a letter from a lawyer that, in all caps, says, you suck as, an, <laughs> as a painter. We spent $1,300, and all we got was this sketch of a Lamborghini. And if you don't give us the $1,300 back immediately, we're going to take you to court. Wow. <laughs> so, in small letters underneath, it says, okay, how about this? How about we you just write us the check, and that'll be fine. And... The painter writes back. He says, look, I really did show up, and I did my best to get you what you needed, but you just made it impossible. And they write back, well, 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 you didn't do your best, best work. And you say, well, what, how, they say, how about we go into binding arbitration? <laughs> and the painter says, I'll tell you what. I said, if we're going to go through this, i got to hire a lawyer and everything. I am happy to go through the process as long as the the loser of this pays the winner's lawyer's fees. Mm-hmm. And there is a silence on the line. And uh, and that's the silence that I've been hearing for several months now. So I'm hoping that <laughs> it is all blown over. But that's it. That's that's how it works sometimes, is clients don't realize that it's a partnership, that to work together is a really important part of it. And you need to have a pretty clear vision of what your app is. And we can play with the specifics of the design, if you know what the purpose of it is and what the audience of it is. Um, but if that keeps changing, and if you're not ready to be a partner in doing you know, testing and checking things off out of our you know, bug list and uh, giving us the assets we need, then you're, you're not going to get the results you want. What makes a good client? A good client... I mean, the first thing you always want is a client who can pay their bills. Right. A lot of people come to us with very sketchy ideas and very sketchy plans for uh, paying us. And you don't ever really want to be in the position of being an investor in a startup if you don't know you're an investor in the startup, <laughs> which is what has happened sometimes. We have had customers who have come to us and have said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to pay you. And then you get a few months in, and they seem to be very reluctant to pay their invoice, and you realize they have no money, and they were just thinking that they would get venture capital by this point and be able to pay you. 
So suddenly, you, you Big Nerd Ranch is the venture capital firm. Um, that has happened. So first thing, make sure they have money. And then the next thing is that they have a real problem. You want to be solving some real pain point for them so that they are really motivated to to be part of it. And I think that was is sometimes a problem is people think, well, it'd be cool if we had this. I really like a customer who says, my God, if we don't have this in a reasonable time frame, our company is going to suffer. So you want somebody who's really motivated and has the cash. And then once you get into the process, you want someone who's going to be a partner in it. And it's very easy for a consulting company to get into an adversarial situation where the customer is demanding unreasonable things and hope they can get a little bit more work out of you for the same price and get it to market slightly faster just by creating anxiety all around. And um, and that's when things really go off the rails. So you need to be very honest up front with the client about how long things are going to take and what the process is going to be. You need to be giving them builds regularly so that they can see what's happening. And uh, when they come to you with changes, you need to be very honest about, well, this is a, this is a significant change and it's going to require these, these uh, re-implementations on our part. And that, that, those early conversations, when often you're still in the sales process, can be um, really scary. But it's really important to do it right. And we work really hard to do it right. Well, that's a good segue. What are the most important piece of information to get on a first call with a potential client? So what do you need to, let's say, write an estimate and find out if this is a client that you could really pursue? Oh, we have a standard set of questions. And, and I think they're the same that every consulting company has, which is, you know, who is the audience for this app, really? And that is a really deep question when you get into it. Is the, the no one's typically using the app right now? It's just something they think they need. Can you really specify who they are? How technically savvy are they? How are they distributed? What sort of network connections are they going to have? The uh, other thing is, of course, deadlines and budget. You need to know the constraints that you're working with. We can do anything, but if you have a deadline and a budget, and they're 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 small, it can be very constrictive. And there are industries where you can't ever miss a deadline. You've, the, the, the app, if it arrives after a certain date, is worthless to them. And you always need to know that going in so that when someone asks for changes, you need to say, well, this is going to change the ship date as well, so we can't do this. Hmm. Um, you always want to know what platforms they want things on. So, uh, if it's a simple application and they need a web version of it as well, it may make sense just to do the whole thing using web technologies. We are not, in every case, demanding that everyone do native applications. Mm -hmm. in, in my experience, there is... Okay, so if someone asks me, they say, I would like an app written that is native on Android and native on iOS. And well, let's, let's just say that. And they say it's just got to be sort of a decent, you know, form-filling application. And they come to me, and I say, well, that's great. That's going to cost you, let's make up a number, fifty thousand mm -hmm. dollars. And they say, super. They say, well, how much would it be if I did all this snazzy stuff to make it really delightful? You know, all sorts of animation and web services and clever caching, a little bit of OpenGL here. 
And I say, well, now it goes from $50,000 to $100,000. Mm-hmm. And then they'll come to me and they'll say, great, what if we do it just using web technologies? Well, we have a web team. We can do the backend services here. We can do the JavaScript. And we can even do it in a very mobile-friendly way. And getting something good, a web application that fills out forms and looks great on mobile platforms, is maybe not as expensive. Maybe getting it to a good usable state costs Thirty-five or forty thousand dollars instead of fifty thousand dollars. But then, when they take that next step, where they're talking about animation and three D graphics and map overlays, now all of a sudden we're not talking about a, le- a leap from thirty-five thousand to a hundred thousand. Now we're talking a leap from thirty-five thousand to a million dollars, mm. or maybe it's not possible at all. And so that's a really important question about what we're trying to do. How deep in the exotic and delightful area are we going? And that can help us determine whether we want to use web technologies or we want to write native applications. Who do you consider to be your main competitors in the consulting realm? Do you find yourself competing with smaller companies mostly or other consulting companies that are about the same size? Oh, both. I mean, we, we compete with all sorts of people. Uh, when we go in for a sales pitch, there'll be a couple of teams that are about our size, there will be an Accenture and an IBM, and there will be uh, a programming team in Ukraine. And this is a a very active space. There's a lot of consulting companies that can do mobile app development. I think we're really well-respected. I think we're sort of a a first-tier boutique-y consulting company, but I recognize that there are many people who can do very decent things developing mobile applications. When when we're talking about outsourced competitors, um, do, do you see the market in the future moving even further into, especially, let's say, for companies smaller than your size, um, moving even further into the outsourced realm, or do you see, um, let's say, North American and Western European developers having um, some kind of in- inherent advantages in terms of cultural awareness or quality? If we look at the way that web consulting has evolved, uh, web consulting had a golden age, and I would say that it was from 96 to 2000. And then after the dot-com collapse, there's always been web development going on, but the profit margins have never been the same. Um, People have brought a lot of their web development in-house. So they have web designers and web implementers on staff. Um, They use a lot more offshore consulting companies. The golden age of web development consulting is over. And I would argue that the golden age of mobile development is also over. The, The margins are not the same. There's lots more competition. Lots more people are taking it in house. Um, the question about the the programmers of Ukraine and India and competing against them, there are some really smart people. It's important to remember that talent is distributed pretty much evenly over the globe. And there are some really smart people all over the world who are studying and working in this space every day and are getting paid a lot less than a U.S. or a, or a Western European programmer. That makes a lot of sense. If you had, if you were talking to somebody who had a company that was still just a couple people or maybe a half dozen to a dozen, like some of the companies we've had on the show, and they said to you, 
someday I want to be like the Big Nerd Ranch. Um, do you see that, based on what you just said, do you see that as still a possibility or is it kind of a long shot in this day and age? I think that it's pretty late coming to the party if you wanted to become a good-sized company. It's just going to be a much bigger struggle. Um, and and I don't want to be negative because I know that lots of your listeners are people who are in small consulting companies or are thinking about starting small consulting companies. I think it's an uphill battle right now, and I would be reluctant to start off being a primarily iOS development company right now. Um, if I were you, I would take a good look around and try and guess what was coming next and specialize in that or pick some niche and say, you know, we are a mobile development company that specializes in you know, uh, medical applications. And we have this experience in medical applications and we have this experience in mobile and we're really focusing on this very specific niche. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's talk about something more positive. Let's get into the tech a little bit. Um, maybe more than anyone else, you've followed the evolution of Apple's platforms um, over the last couple of decades. How do you feel about the current state of the platforms from a programmer's perspective? I find programming for Apple products utterly delightful. Um, the big reusable chunks of code they give us are well-engineered, well-tested, well-documented. It's a treat. Uh, really, I enjoy writing on these platforms. I think one of the tricky things is that when you talk about a phone, there's only so far you can go. I had an iPhone 4. Honestly, it was a great phone. My iPhone 6 is not that much greater. Um, I feel like there's only so far you can go with a phone. And I'm hoping that we're going to see Apple branching off into more and more devices. So uh, maybe making the Apple TV more of a developer platform the um, Apple Car I keep waiting for, hmm. the Apple sneakers that have iOS running inside them. Um, I, I'm looking forward to new devices and new opportunities to develop on the Apple platform. But it would be fun to see some more nifty technology coming out. Have you seen a significant amount of client demand for Apple Watch and Apple TV apps? We've done a little bit of stuff, but overall not a huge demand. What do you think Apple needs to improve to, to increase that demand? I feel like Apple has done a grave disservice to the developer community by not having timed trials. So it would be great to have apps that you could download and try for a week, and then it would say, do you want to buy this or should I delete it? Until we have that, people are not willing to make a significant investment in the application and we're stuck pricing everything at 99 cents and it's really hard to make a product and know that ahead of time the price is always going to be 99 cents so i, I think that if i were advising apple on a way to make the developer community stronger it would be to do timed trials, and also to do pay upgrades. Same idea. If I have done a simple version of the app and now I'm doing something incredible, you should be willing to pay for the incredible features or stay with what you've got. What's your current philosophy with students who are new to the platform with regards to still learning Objective-C? I remember you wrote a blog post about this. I think it was a couple years ago. Um, what, what are your feelings today? Do you think that new developers need to still learn Objective-C? If you come into a company that has an existing iOS application, I can pretty much guarantee that if you're working on that, you're going to need to know Objective-C because it's probably written in Objective-C. 
So to be able to read through the code and understand what you're working on, even if you're writing Swift code that calls it, you're still going to need to know Objective-C. When I do real low-level programming, for example, if I'm dropping in to write CF stream code, mm -hmm. it's much easier to write an Objective-C and then call that from Swift. If you're doing brand new code that doesn't involve low-level work, you'd be really comfortable knowing only Swift. At this point, most of the code samples that you need are on Stack Overflow or probably in both Objective-C and Swift. So you do fine at this point with that. But I don't think most people are lucky enough to be starting on brand new projects that don't do low-level programming. So I think it's still really valuable to know Objective-C. When you're looking for new hires at the Big Nerd Ranch, do you look for generalists or do you look for developers who have a very specific skill set, such as would you seek somebody who has a great deal of core animation experience and prefer that candidate over somebody who's more of an iOS generalist? When we hire, we primarily hire looking for three traits. We look for brilliant, hardworking, and kind people. And honestly, the experience is sort of secondary. We want to find people who have uh, that way of thinking that makes a great programmer, which is very creative, and yet with insights the strictures of the language or the technology you're working with. So one of the nice things about being a training company is we can really help people fill in the blanks they need. But we're not a huge company. It's not like we have anyone who is dedicated just to core animation or just to core audio. We work on projects where we have to really understand the whole system. And we have subject matter experts. So there are certain people, if I was going in to um, do something very fancy with networking. I know there's a guy who is a subject matter expert here for that. Um, but overall, on a normal project, I'm going to expect people to be able to do their own work and learn things as they need to. And that's part of taking on the project is really learning all the corners of iOS. And we enjoy that here. That's why I like people who are brilliant. And when I say brilliant, I don't mean that they were born necessarily with the most neurons, but I mean that they have that curiosity and fascination with ideas that enables them to master things and enjoy mastering things. Do you see reactive functional programming becoming uh, more commonplace? Um, do, do you see um, iOS apps being built with JavaScript becoming more commonplace. Um, are, is there a certain uh, paradigm of software development that you see becoming more commonplace on Apple platforms? So we see a lot of people talking about the React architectures. And in particular, on Android, we've done a bunch of stuff with React Rx. And it's, um, it's very compelling. It's a nice model to follow. It reminds us a lot of for example, Microsoft's MVVM architecture, mm -hmm. it enables a lot of interesting approaches for testing and design. We're, we're very fond of it. But when you talk about React Native and writing applications in JavaScript, we're not terribly excited about that particular approach. We don't think JavaScript is a particularly great language for coding in. The really nice benefit to it, of course, is that the code can be uploaded at runtime. So you can actually be changing the application after the person has downloaded it. Talking about 
paradigms, Swift has brought together two worlds. There's clearly the old school Objective-C developers who come from more of an object-oriented background. And then there's also the functional programmers who've kind of uh, come into the Swift world as well. Do you see a conflict between those two groups moving forward? And is there a bit of a push and pull in which direction uh, the, the frameworks around the language take? I think you have a really good point in that Swift is more of a functional friendly language. That said, I feel like the object-oriented people are learning these functional ideas and appreciating their elegance very quickly. And I don't think the object-oriented nature of it will ever go away. An object-oriented language is really a nice language for creating user interfaces with mm -hmm. because the object-oriented paradigm really comes from the world of simulation. The object-oriented programming started with the language Simula 67, and Simula, as you might guess from the name, was designed for writing simulations. And when you think about the user interface, it really is a simulation. That isn't a button on the screen. That's a simulation of a button. And it has some state, and it has some behavior. It really is a very elegant model for writing graphical user interfaces with. That said, once you start spending a lot of time on uh, fetching data from a web service, you really do need a way to say, and when you get that data, run this chunk of code. And it's not just a, like a function pointer that you want executed. You actually want that chunk of code to grab some state that it's going to need when the data comes back. And that's what's really nice about closures. And that's what's added into blocks and, and Swift, Swift closures. And that we, I think we all recognize that in the modern world where we have these long fetches to go get data, we have uh, multiple processors, closures are a really valuable addition to the language. And I don't think there's a conflict there because we are all eager to have access to them. What do you think about the preference that value types have been given over reference types in many um, code guides for Swift? Do you feel that that's the, the correct direction? Yeah, so in Swift, there's a lot of things that old Objective-C programmers think of as reference types, but are actually value types, for example, the collections. And I have to say that it really does throw me from time to time that they don't act the way that they did in Objective-C. And, and that's just because I'm an old fuddy-duddy. But I can definitely see some of the value. And as we're talking about a more and more functional approach to things, the idea of editing objects in place is not as functional friendly, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why value classes have gotten so much more press in Swift than they were in Objective-C. And I think that's a very natural evolution of the way we think about our data structures, given the way that we're now thinking about our algorithms. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do, there's been a lot of talk about iOS programs coming to the Mac in the form of some kind of UI kit for the Mac. Um, and there's been a lot in the blogosphere about this and some prominent developers have commented on it. Um, what do you think about the future Mac um, APIs going forward? Do you think that it should continue to be AppKit and then UIKit on iOS? Or should there be a merging of the two? I think given the different input methods and the different screen sizes, you will always end up rewriting your user interface for the two different platforms. I'm just happy to see that so much of the stuff behind the user interface, so when we talk about NS session, it's available on both platforms. 
Um, I'm glad that so much of the back end is now common. And at every turn, it seems like they're working harder and harder to make sure that more and more of the code is common behind the two. So I'm really not too desperate for that. I think I think in reality, you're always going to have two code bases for those two platforms. So you mentioned earlier that sometimes a client comes in and they want to do a native app for iOS and a native app for Android. And you'll actually... Uh, convince them that it's better to just do a web solution. Do you ever use some of the cross-platform frameworks like Titanium and PhoneGap uh, in lieu of doing a pure web solution? Yeah, we've used PhoneGap for several projects, and, and we think it's great. It's a very lightweight layer over top of web technologies. Uh, I used to be very religious about native, native, native. It's got to be native. And I still think if you're going to be evolving the application into something very complex and beautiful and delightful, it's probably worth it to start off right away as a native application. But for lots of things, uh, the web technologies are totally sufficient. And honestly, the web technologies keep getting better and better. We're really excited about some of the new things coming out for the web. So HTML5 is obvious, but also ES6 is making JavaScript a much more usable language. So as we start to wrap up, I'm wondering if you have further advice for consultants who are still building their careers. And you mentioned earlier that you would look at what is the next platform. Um, what else can you tell us? First of all, I want to say that I think consulting is a really great business. You have these huge companies that can't maintain a culture of creativity and innovation and that you get to act as the sort of steward for one of these environments where you really can cultivate people and their passions and their capabilities over the long term and make that service available to companies that need it. It's a very elegant and useful partnership, and I think you should be really proud to be part of it. Some, of, some people say bad things about consultants, and I think that's because a lot of people do it in a way that lacks integrity. And so I want to my advice, the most important advice, is that you think about long-term strength, that you don't staff up a bunch of people for a project, and then when it's over, that you lay them all off. That shouldn't be an expected result. You should be always taking on projects small enough where you can easily start up new projects and, and utilize those people and not expect to fire them all off again. You shouldn't make promises to your clients that you can't keep. Um, you need to really be honest up front about what's realistic for them to expect. And I think that if you're really honest and have the long-term view with both your clients and with your employees, that you'll really enjoy being in the business. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Great. And well, since we have also a preeminent author, what advice do you have to technical authors who are maybe writing their first or second book. I've written one book. I'm working on my second right now. So this is especially interesting to me personally as well. Don't write a book. <laughs> that would be my first advice. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible business. You uh, work really hard. You put it out. You get really awful feedback on Amazon. And anytime there's a typo, people are write you nasty letters. It's a, it's a heartbreaking toil and I don't recommend it to anyone. Okay. <laughs> that said, if you're going to write a book, the most important thing is that you really be very clear about your audience. Who is it you're trying to speak to? And if you can get it down to just 
this person that I know who has these skills and needs to be able to write this sort of code, that's the most important part is focusing on a very particular audience and then having a lot of empathy for that audience as you're writing your book. That makes perfect sense. Is there anything in the realm of consulting or Apple platforms that we didn't talk about that you wanted to? I think one of the really important things whenever you're getting to the end of a project is that you take time to do a retrospective and be really honest about what you did right and what you did wrong and try to document that and improve. You shouldn't have to have a crisis in order to tweak what you're doing to make it more effective. And I think that this retrospective, which is often a really painful process because you're finally done with something and it's shipped and you don't have to talk to that customer anymore, to go through and really think deeply about how you could have served them better is, uh, is painful and important. Well, is there anything you want to plug, Aaron? Um, any new books you want to tell us about or uh, links that you want everyone to visit? Sure. I wish you'd come to bignerdranch.com. We are always eager to do training. You can come to our open enrollment boot camps, either in California or in Georgia. And then we have corporate training, so we can send instructors to your site and teach all your engineers how to do iOS, Android, JavaScript, Ruby on Rails programming. We are always eager to take on a new project so if you're uh this i imagine this is mostly listened to by consulting companies yeah so if there's something that you can't handle or that you're don't have the bandwidth to deal with we would be happy to take that work off your hands and um our books we have the standard books you said the standard book on coco but i like to think we have the standard books on swift and ios and android as well but we have a new one coming out in April, which will be our uh, front-end web development book, which is all about JavaScript and HTML5 and style sheets. And I think it's going to be a really great book. Once again, I think it's going to be sort of the standard JavaScript book. So look for that uh, in your local bookstore. Yeah, and I can't endorse the books highly enough. I'm a reader of them myself, and in my other career, I'm a college professor, and I am actually adopted your Android book for a mobile development class that we're doing in the fall. So, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, Aaron, how can people reach you on Twitter or otherwise? So on Twitter, I'm at Aaron Hilligus, and I'm always happy to get email. My email address is Aaron at BigNerdRanch.com. That's with two A's. Um, that's it. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I think the listeners do too. Dave, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for letting me be on. Thanks for listening to the show. For show notes, you can check out consultpodcast.com. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a review of the show on iTunes and also remember to recommend us on Overcast. And if you want to reach me and give me some feedback about the show, please tweet me at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you in May.